This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, May 9th, 2019, Episode 72, An Icelandic Vision of the Afterlife. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Last episode, we jumped over to address current events in looking at Notre Dame Cathedral, and in a way that curiously continued a theme from the previous episode as far as talking about St. Mary as a patron. Today, I want to go back and pick up a different thread from that earlier episode, which is Otherworld Journeys, which we saw in the odd dream of Sir James the Vicar of Domini. We have another one in today's episode, and it also breaks with the conventional patterns. That's because it's an unusual fusion of genres. It's part Christian vision of heaven and hell, and it's part Norse Edda. This is a poem called Solarljoth, a name given to it within its own lines. Sol means sun, and Lyoth means verse or song, so this is the Song of the Sun, or Sun Song. It's been rather understudied, as is the case with many Norse texts of later date, uh, though that's something that's been changing, at least as of the mid-20th century. It's not included in the collected Eddic poetry of the Codex Regius, and it survives only in paper manuscripts from the 17th century and later. There are a lot of these, uh, at least 71, but they all appear to derive from a single older copy that must have survived into the 1600s, and we can deduce this from ten different errors in the text that have been reproduced consistently across all of these paper copies. As I said before, it's a poem that mixes two cultural traditions. It has the mythological elusiveness of Voluspau, which we heard back in our Ragnarok episode, and it has visions of the torments of the damned and the delights of the blessed that we find in Christian otherworld visions and near-death experience narratives, as we touched on two episodes ago. Additionally, it has a catalog of proverbial wisdom, like you find in the Norse poem Halvamal, or the biblical book of Proverbs, or Polonius's speech to Laertes in Hamlet, uh, you know, neither a borrower nor a lender be, etc., some of these are straightforward proverbs, you know, statements of do's and don'ts, and some are little stories, or at least allusions to stories, that are used to set up a conclusion or moral, like fables. And we're going to look at some fables next episode, which ought to be a lot of fun. Actually, it will be kind of fun and kind of brutal, because the Aesopic fables don't pull their punches. And today's text, too, is rather grim. It opens with a murder, a story which I'm going to paraphrase for you in advance, because it's not especially clear. We're told that one Grimmy Grepper lived as a robber and highwayman. So that phrase is the form of a proper name, Grepper the Grim. But it could also be a common noun, meaning poet, or a sort of bruiser or villain, Benjamin Thorpe translates it as a fierce freebooter, though the version of that translation I'll be reading today, I've modified that to just robber. So, this might be a generic robber. It might be a reference to an otherwise unknown mythological or historical story. I'll say when I first read it, especially in the context of all the fire and brimstone imagery we get later, I initially assumed the robber that despoils mankind was meant to be Satan though the events of the narrative make this identification not work out so well. And here's the narrative. A wandering traveler shows up at the robber's house. The robber considers murdering his guest, but in a moment of conscientiousness, does not. He does not violate that deeply held host-guest cultural relationship. However, the guest turns out to be ungrateful and murders the robber while the robber is sleeping. One rather wonders if the source material for this story included some implication that the guest realizes that his host is this notorious outlaw, or some richer motivation than just the simple irony that the guest turns out to be more evil than the host, who thought he was the bad one. Anyway, the main punchline, so to speak, is that because the robber spared the guest and praised to God at the moment of his death, his soul goes to heaven 
and the burden of all his lifetime of sin is transferred onto his murderer. At least, that reading seems to make the most sense. The text itself is mostly a string of unspecified pronouns. He contemplated evil. He was suspicious. And it can get a bit hard to tell which he is doing what. Uh, In the version I'll read, I've gone ahead and expanded some of those pronouns to make it easier to follow. Um, Though a few phrases require just making a judgment call. After this opening parable, we get a few more little elusive stories and Polonius proverbs. And then, about a third of the way in, our narrator finally identifies himself. He is a man speaking from beyond the grave. He's going to tell us what it feels like to die and what rewards lie beyond. Unlike Sir James and his Otherworld trial from two episodes back, this man is not narrating a near-death experience, but a full-on death experience. Uh, Later still, we will learn that he is relating all of this via a dream vision to his child, uh, literally his arfi, or heir, a non-gender-specific noun, though some translators, including Thorpe, render it as son, which is probably fair given the context, uh, but I'm going to keep it as heir. So, our speaker is reminiscent of another Edic narrator, the Volva of Voluspau, who also speaks from beyond, and one rather wonders if there isn't a paper to be had on this Christianized reworking of Norse otherworld imagery being given in this case to a male speaker in contrast to the female seeress of Voluspau. And there may well be such a paper, um, but I did not happen to come across it. Another thing Solar Lioth and Voluspau have in common is that they are both Eddic poems, uh, though that becomes less significant when you realize that Edda as a category is basically a modern distinction and is kind of just a catch-all for everything that's not obviously skaldic poetry. In fact, in the distinction that matters more, the metrical category, these two poems differ. Voluspau is written in Fornirdeslach, or Old Story Meter. Um, And we say meter, but really we're talking about meter plus a typical stanza structure. Uh, So these Norse meters are a broader category of form than, say, iambic pentameter. Uh, Solar Lioth, on the other hand, is in Liothahauter, or song meter, which consists of four-line stanzas, with the first line containing two alliterating verses, like the half-lines you'd find in Old English poetry, but then the second line is just a single verse by itself, and then the third and fourth lines repeat the same pattern. It creates an interesting effect. Uh, It's not quite as stable and steady as the consistent pairs of half-lines you get in Fornitherslach, or Old English alliterative verse, but it still has its own symmetry. It's not really accurate to say it's like the difference between 4-4 time and 3-4 time, but that comparison maybe conveys a a certain sense of the difference. When Solar Lioth was most likely written in the 13th century, though we have the typical uncertainty about that, um, but by the 1200s, Liothahauter as a poetic form had been declining in popularity, and so by choosing to use it in that era this poem seems to be deliberately evoking an old-fashioned sensibility, not just in the melding of images of Norse myth with Christian moral preaching, but in its verse form as well. Unfortunately, of course, most of this metrical quality is lost in translation. And indeed, I've kind of gone into the base translation I'm using and destroyed much of what metrical parallels there were, As I mentioned, our translation is based on that of Benjamin Thorpe from 1866, but I've made a number of adjustments to syntax and word choice, which might make it all a bit less poetical, but also a lot easier to follow by ear. Thorpe has a tendency to render his translation in Norse word order, which in English sounds a bit like Yoda speak. Uh, For example, here's a line from Thorpe. Of all things may be destitute he who for nothing asks. Which I will be reading as, He who asks for nothing may be destitute of all things. And I've made rather a lot of those kinds of adjustments here. The poem is obscure enough in its images that we don't need to add to that with alien syntax. Uh, So don't blame Thorpe for lack of poetry here. I'll take the blame on myself, uh, like that murderous guest from the start of the poem. 
Before we get to the text, a handful of word glosses. Uh, one word we'll encounter is sackless. This is Benjamin Thorpe's translation into English of the Old Norse word sacklaus. Uh, they're basically the same word. Sackless in English goes back to Old English, and so the similarity is due to either a common earlier Germanic cognate uh, or a borrowing into English from Old Norse in the great linguistic cross-pollination that occurred in the Danelaw. That said, sackless is now considered archaic in English, it hung on as a dialect word in Scottish into the 19th century, but is pretty well gone now. It means without sack, uh, as one might guess. And sack, S-A-C, in this sense is guilt, or fault, or harm-causing. So someone who is sackless is guiltless, or innocent. It's one of those great playground insult words that sounds like it means something worse than it does. You're totally sackless. Uh, it could be a gag along the lines of, ew, your epidermis is showing. Another verbal point that doesn't come through well in audio, uh, there's a significant reference later in the poem to the solarhjort, or heart of the sun. That's heart, H-A-R-T, as in a stag, a deer. Mythologically, some have linked this to Dvalin, one of the hearts that eats the branches of Yggdrasil, the world tree, and in this poem the symbolic association seems to point towards Christ instead. There are a handful of other Norse mythological terms that I've just inserted little parenthetical descriptions of, uh, where convenient, though as with Volospau, there will be a fair number of names and references that will just have to flow on by sometimes because they don't lend themselves to explanation in just a few words, but more often because scholars don't know what's being referred to. Uh, the stories just haven't survived. And lastly, while I've adjusted the pronouns and syntax for clarity, I've kept some archaic word choices and Thorpe's use of thee and thou, since that conveys a bit of the old-fashioned feeling this poem's style would have likely had, even for its original audience. Anyway, here is Solarlioth, the Song of the Sun. Of life and property, a fierce robber despoiled the children of men. Over the ways beset by him might no one pass alive. Alone he ate most frequently, he invited no one to his repast, until, weary and with failing strength, a wandering guest came from the way. In need of drink and hungry that wayworn man seemed to be, with trembling heart he seemed to trust him who had been so evil-minded. Meat and drink to the weary one the robber gave, all with upright heart. The traveler's wants supplied, on God the host thought, for he felt he was an evildoer. Up stood the guest, meditating evil. He did not receive the gift gratefully. His sin within him swelled. He murdered his wary, cautious host while sleeping. That man prayed to the God of heaven for help when he woke upon being struck and the other was doomed to take on the sins of the sackless one whom he had slain. Holy angels came from heaven above and took to them his soul. In a life of purity it shall ever live with the Almighty God. Riches and health no one may command, though all go smoothly with him. To many befalls that which they least expect. No one may set their own terms. Unar and Saivaldi never imagined that happiness would abandon them, yet naked they became, and bereft of all, and like wolves ran to the forest. The power of pleasure has many a one bewailed. Cares are often caused by women. Pernicious they become, although the mighty God created them pure. United were Svalfather and Skarthethen, neither might be without the other, until, for a woman, they were driven to frenzy. She was destined for their perdition. 
On account of that fair maid, neither of them cared for games or joyous days. No other thing could they in memory bear than that bright form. Sad to them were the gloomy nights, no sweet sleep might they enjoy, but from that anguish rose intense hate between the faithful friends. Hostile deeds are in most places fiercely avenged. To the dueling place they went, for that wise woman, and each one found his death. Arrogance should no one entertain. I indeed have seen that those who follow her, for the most part, turn from God. Rich were both Rathni and Vebothi, and thought only of their well-being. Now they sit and turn their sores towards various hearths. They in themselves trusted, and thought themselves alone to be above all people, but Almighty God was pleased to appoint their lot otherwise. A life of luxury they led, in many ways, and had gold for sport. Now they are requited so that they must walk between frost and fire. To thy enemies trust thou never, although they speak thee fair. Promise them good, tis good to have another's injury as a warning. So it befell sorely the good counseling when he placed himself in Vigolf's power. He confidently trusted him, his brother's murderer, but that one proved false. Peace he granted to them with heart sincere, they in return promised him gold, feigned themselves friends, while they together drank, but then came forth their guile. Then afterwards, on the second day, when they in Rygjardal rode, they with swords wounded him who sackless was, and let his life go forth. His corpse they dragged on a lonely way, and cut up piecemeal, dropping it into a well. They wished to hide it, but the Holy Lord watched from heaven. The true God summoned his soul into his joy to come, but the evildoers will, I ween, be from torments late called. Do thou pray the Desir, or heavenly maidens, of the Lord's words to be kind to thee in spirit, for a week after all shall then go happily according to thy will. For a deed of ire that thou hast perpetrated Never atone with evil. The weeping thou shalt soothe with benefits. That is salutary to the soul. For good things a man should call on God, on him who has created mankind. Greatly sinful is every man who late finds the Father. We think it right to ask for that which is lacking. He who asks for nothing may be destitute of all things. Few heed the needs of the silent. Late I came, though called early, to the supreme judge's door. Thitherward I yearn, for it was promised me, he who craves it shall partake of the feast. Sins are the cause that sorrowing we depart from this world. No one stands in dread if he does no evil. Good it is to be blameless. All those who have a faithless mind seem like unto wolves, so he will prove who has to go through ways strewn with embers. I have imparted to thee seven friendly counsels and wisely composed. Consider them well and forget them never. They are all useful to learn. Of that will I speak how happy I was in the world, and secondly, how the sons of men reluctantly become corpses. Pleasure and pride deceive the sons of men who yearn after money. Shining riches at last become a sorrow. Riches have turned many into apes. Steeped in joys I seemed to men, for not much did I see ahead. The Lord has created our worldly sojourn abounding in delights. Bowed down I sat, long I tottered, was most desirous of life. But he prevailed who was all-powerful. Onward are the ways of the doomed. The cords of hell were tightly bound round my sides. I would rend them, but they were strong. Tis easy to move when free. I alone knew how on all sides my pains increased. The maids of hell each eve bade me with horror to their home. The sun I saw, true star of day, sink in its roaring home but I heard hell's grated doors creaking heavily on the other side. 
the sun I saw beset with blood-red beams. I was then from this world fast declining. She appeared mightier in many ways than she was before. The sun I saw, and it seemed to me as if I saw a glorious god. I bowed before her for the last time in the world of men. The sun I saw, she beamed forth so that I seemed to know nothing, but the sea's streams roared from the other side mingled with much blood. The sun I saw with quivering eyes, appalled and shrinking, for my heart in great measure was dissolved in languor. The sun I saw seldom sadder. I had then almost from the world declined. My tongue was become as wood, and all the outside was cold. The sun I saw never after since that gloomy day, for the mountain waters closed over me, and I went cold from torments. The star of hope when I was born fled from my breast away. High it flew, settled nowhere that it might find rest. Longer than all was that one night when stiff on my straw I lay. Then the divine word becomes manifest. Man is the same as earth. The creator God, he who made heaven and earth, can estimate and know how many go hence forsaken although they part from kindred. Each has the reward of his works. Happy is he who does good. Bereft of my wealth, to me was destined a bed strewn with sand. Bodily desires oftentimes seduce men. Many a one has too much of them. Wash water was of all things most loathsome to me. In the Norn seat I sat nine days, Thence I was mounted on a horse. There the giantess's sun shone grimly through the dripping clouds of heaven. Without and within, I seemed to traverse all the seven netherworlds, up and down. I sought an easier way where I might have the readiest paths. Of that is to be told which I first saw, when to the worlds of torment I came. Scorched birds, which were souls, flew numerous as flies. From the west I saw the Vanar dragon fly, and a light on Glyvalder's paths. They shook their wings, wide around me the earth and heaven seemed to burst. The sun's heart I saw coming from the south. He was led by two together, his feet stood on the earth, but his horns reached up to heaven. From the north I saw the sons of Nithya riding, they were seven in all. From full horns they drank the pure mead from the heaven god's well. The wind was silent, the waters stopped their course. Then I heard a doleful sound. False-faced women ground earth into food for their husbands. Those dark women sorrowfully turned gory stones. Bleeding hearts hung out of their breasts, faint with much affliction. Many a man I saw wounded go on those ember-strewn paths. Their faces seemed to me all reddened with reeking blood. Many men I saw gone down to earth who had not had divine service. Heathen stars stood above their heads, painted with deadly characters. I saw those men who harbor much envy at another's fortune. Bloody runes were on their breasts, painfully engraved. I saw their men, many not joyful. They were all wandering wild. He earns this who is infatuated by this world's vices. I saw those men who had in various ways acquired others' property. In shoals they went to Fegyarn's castle and bore burdens of lead. I saw those men who had bereft many of life and property. Through the breasts of those men passed strong, venomous serpents. I saw those men who would not observe the holy days. Their hands were firmly nailed on hot stones. I saw those men who from pride valued themselves too highly. Their garments were enveloped ludicrously in fire. I saw those men who had uttered many false words of others. Hell's ravens miserably tore their eyes from their heads. All the horrors which Hell's inmates suffer, thou wilt not get to know. Pleasant sins end in painful penalties. Pains ever follow pleasure.
I saw those men who had given much for God's laws. Pure lights were brightly burning above their heads. I saw those men who from exalted mind helped the poor to aid. Angels read holy books above their heads. I saw those men who had wasted their bodies with much fasting. God's angels bowed before them. That is the highest joy. I saw those men who had put food into their mother's mouth. Their couches were pleasantly placed on the rays of heaven. Holy virgins had cleanly washed the souls from sin of those men who for a long time had tormented themselves. Lofty carts I saw toward heaven going. They were on the way to God. Men who had been murdered, wholly without cause, guided them. Almighty Father, greatest Son, Holy Spirit of heaven, I pray thee who has created us all, free us all from miseries. Bugvor and Listvor sit at Herther's doors on a resounding seat. Iron gore falls from their nostrils, which kindles hate among men. Odin's wife rose in Earth's ship, eager after pleasures, her sails are reefed late, which are hung on the ropes of desire. My heir, I thy father, and Solkatla's sons have alone obtained for thee that heart's horn, which the wise Vigdvalin bore from the grave mound. Here are runes which Neorth's daughters nine have engraven, Bodveg the eldest, and the youngest Krepvor, and their seven sisters. How much violence have Svalf and Svalflogi perpetrated, bloodshed they have excited, and wounds have sucked after an evil custom. This lay which I have taught thee, thou shalt sing before the living, the sun song, which will appear in many parts, no fiction. Here we part, but again shall meet on the day of men's rejoicing. O Lord, unto the dead grant peace, and to the living comfort. Wondrous lore has to thee in dream been sung, but thou hast seen the truth. No man has been created so wise that he has heard the sun song before. So... That was the sun song, Solarlioth, naming itself in its own last line. In our Ragnarok and Voluspau episode, I talked about the debate over whether that poem's closing image of a returning ruler god reflected Christian influences, or syncretism, or editorial amendment, or mythological coincidence. Despite the wealth of Norse mythological allusion and imagery in our sun song, uh, there's really no doubt that this is a fundamentally Christian poem. It shouldn't be surprising to see pagan mythology deployed in Christian descriptions of hell. Greco-Roman Hades shaped Christian renderings of the Inferno from early on in the development of the concept. And of course, you'll often see the claim that the word hell was adopted from the Norse goddess and her realm. The actual etymology there is considerably more complex, um, but there is an underlying Germanic language commonality at work, and you do have the transposition of another culture's concept onto a Christian one. Anyway, uh, the point is that associating another religion's deities and symbols with the infernal in Christianity is a practice with deep roots. What's a bit more surprising in this poem is seeing Norse mythological imagery applied to the positive Christian symbols. But if Christ is a lamb, why can't he also be a sun heart? If the gospel is the word, then surely it is also runes and the fruit of the poetic mead. Carolyn Larrington and Peter Robinson argue that this kind of transference in the poem is purely rhetorical. This isn't syncretism. It isn't a cross-pollination of pagan and Christian belief. The references to things like the meat of poetry and wisdom here should be viewed in the way that we read Milton calling upon the muse to aid him in the composition of Paradise Lost, not as a pagan survival, but as a purely literary illusion. And as an aside, uh, while Milton specifies that his muse is the Holy Spirit at the start of Paradise Lost, 
In Book 7, he also calls the spirit Urania, the Greek name of the muse of astronomy and the heavens. So he does push the illusion beyond just using the word muse to describe the role of the Holy Spirit. All that said, uh, for every Norse to Christian analogy that's been worked out in this poem, there are several that are anyone's guess. Uh, One interesting mystery item is the line, Bodily desires oftentimes seduce men. Many a one has too much of them. Wash water was of all things most loathsome to me. This wash water is lugavatn, and wash or washing water is a literal translation. Thorpe actually calls it water of baths, which I modified to the less specific wash water. Some have said this refers to baptism, which a godless man shuns. Uh, Some have said it's the cleansing of the soul through penance. Some have said it's literal bathing water linked to the famous Norse custom of the Saturday bath, uh, seen as so foreign by the Anglo-Saxons. And in that context, it could either still be linked to ritual purity, um, but it could also be almost the opposite, uh, bathing as a bodily luxury and indulgence. So the line lends itself to these polarized interpretations, uh, either the wash water is one of the bodily desires that seduces men, or it's the cure for the taint of desire. There's one more line I want to pull out to look at, since it brings into play another of my aesthetic fancies. This line is, I saw those men who from pride valued themselves too highly. Their garments were enveloped ludicrously in fire. This sentiment reminded me of the verses of a hymn by the prolific early 18th century hymnist Isaac Watts. Its lyrics go, Lord, what a thoughtless wretch was I, to mourn and murmur and repine, to see the wicked placed on high, in pride and robes of honor shine. But oh, their end, their dreadful end, thy sanctuary taught me so, on slippery rocks I see them stand, and fiery billows roll below. This hymn is given the title Greenwich in the 19th century hymn collection The Sacred Harp, which has since lent its name to a style of singing that predates that particular book by almost a century. It's a kind of music that has fascinated me since I first heard a clip of it in a class as an undergraduate, and Greenwich in particular is one of my favorite examples of it. Sacred Harp Singing is an American folk religious song form. Uh, It's also sometimes called shape note singing, since one of the features of the Sacred Harp hymnal is that the notes are not just placed on the staff, but are also given shapes, uh, square, triangular, round, which correspond to the syllables fa, so, la, and mi. If you repeat the first three and add mi, you get the major scale. Fa, so, la, fa, so, la, mi, fa. So it's a system designed to help people without much musical training to sight-read music. And while shape note singing is strongly associated with the kind of religious music that accompanied the great American tent revival movements, uh, it actually goes right back to the origins of Western musical notation and the systems of Guido of Arezzo from the 11th century. The damnation imagery of Greenwich marks it out as a revivalist song, I think. The musical arrangement of the hymn used in Sacred Harp Singing is by the American composer Daniel Reed from 1785. It's a fuguing tune, which is another stylistic hallmark of Sacred Harp Singing, though the fugues are only one of a few different modes of the Sacred Harp. Uh, Indeed, you have the kinds of broad categories there that remind me of the different major verse forms of Norse poetry. I'm going to play a recording of Greenwich in a moment, uh, but I want to set a little more context first. The hymns of the Sacred Harp are all designed for four-part harmony, and the tradition tends to emphasize performance by ordinary people, and that ties into the shape-note populism. There's a strong folk element to this tradition, and one of its charms is that it largely exists in live performance and in field recordings of live performance, And the singers aren't all perfectly on key or on tempo, and some are nasal and some are more resonant. It feels far more human than angelic, uh, though that does not at all mean that it's lacking in power. Quite the contrary. 
One of the other leading fugue tune composers, a contemporary with Daniel Reed, was William Billings. In the preface to his hymnal Continental Harmony, published in 1794, he describes this new style and writes, There is more variety in one piece of fuguing music than in twenty pieces of plain song. For while the tones do most sweetly coincide and agree, the words are seemingly engaged in a musical warfare, and each part seems determined by dint of harmony and strength of accent to drown his competitor in an ocean of harmony, while each part is thus mutually striving for mastery and sweetly contending for victory, the audience are most luxuriously entertained and exceedingly delighted. In the meantime, their minds are surprisingly agitated and extremely fluctuated, sometimes declaring in favor of one part and sometimes another. Now the solemn bass demands their attention, now the manly tenor, now the lofty counter, now the volatile treble, now here, now there, now here again. Oh, enchanting, oh, ecstatic. And by the way, I got that wonderful quotation by way of the book, The Sacred Harp, A Tradition and Its Music by Buell E. Cobb Jr. On our theme of cultural echoes, I love how this a cappella music, which has a certain ancestral kinship with plain song and the polyphony of 13th century motets, is also framed in strikingly different terms by its creators. I doubt many medieval composers, maybe some, uh, would think of celestial harmony in terms of conflict and warfare and confusion as Billings does in an exuberance that does seem distinctly American. And yet, there is a degree to which the medieval harmonies also embraced dissonance and asynchrony in their own ways, which is why, despite theories of the harmony of the spheres, I'm not sure that all medieval composers would entirely disagree with Billing's conception of a kind of push-and-pull of parts that is both energetic but also contemplative in its way. Billings and Reed's style of fuguing songs had a heyday in the late 18th century in the singing schools and churches of New England, but faded rather quickly as more European styles became fashionable in the early 19th century. Its decline was such that when Billings, one of its leading lights, died in 1800, his family was so destitute they couldn't afford a tombstone for him. But this New England tradition revived in the American South in, appropriately enough, the mid-century revival movement, which is when the actual book, The Sacred Harp, came out in 1844, in fact, uh, featuring shape note notation. And it continues today, with sacred harp groups, uh, many non-denominational and even secular, uh, or if not exactly secular, then at least secular-friendly, with these holding regular singing events. Sacred harp recordings have also uh, seemed to experience a little vogue among music coordinators in Hollywood since the early 2000s. Sacred harp was featured on the soundtrack to the film adaptation of Cold Mountain, and I've certainly noticed it popping up in other Southern period pieces since then. The form also has a surprising popularity, surprising to me at least, in Europe. And in fact, the recording we're about to hear is from a gathering of the Cork Sacred Harp in Ireland, whose performances are up on YouTube and SoundCloud under a Creative Commons license. And let's hear that recording. It begins with one of the common features of Sacred Harp singing, which is a kind of warm-up round. The song is first sung without lyrics, but with the fa-so-la note names instead. Then they move on to the actual lyrics. Uh, I'm going to repeat the lyrics once again myself, uh, since they're not the easiest thing to follow in the performance, and it's been a while since I actually said them. Uh, The first verse, which is going to be in four-part harmony but not fugued, goes... Lord, what a thoughtless wretch was I, to mourn and murmur and repine, to see the wicked placed on high, in pride and robes of honor shine. The fuguing part then kicks in with the chorus, and goes, But O their end, their dreadful end, thy sanctuary taught me so, on slippery rocks I see them stand, and fiery billows roll below. In the nature of the fugue, uh, like in a round, It's very hard as a listener to parse the lyrics as they start to overlap, but individual phrases tend to pop out with a certain clarity. In this chorus, 
I particularly hear, but owe their end their dreadful end, and on slippery rocks, and fiery billows roll below, which are phrases I'd put right up there alongside the hell imagery we have in Solar Leoth. All right, here is Greenwich, lyrics by Isaac Watts, arranged by Daniel Reed, and performed by Cork Sacred Harp in 2011. Greenwich. I have a hard time explaining why I like it so much, uh, but it's stuck with me since that very first time I heard it as an undergraduate on a collection of Sacred Harp field recordings from 1959 made by the great folk musicologist Alan Lomax. Intellectually, I don't care much for the fire and brimstone messaging, but emotionally, it kind of works. It's like an early American Dies Irae, uh, which I could also listen to pretty much on a loop and be happy. Uh, and that applies to the medieval version, of course, but sure, Mozart and Verdi too. Greenwich is a loose reworking by Isaac Watts of Psalm 73, which includes the lines, as per the New Revised Standard Version, Truly God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pain, their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not plagued like other people. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them like a garment. And then later, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awaking, you despise their phantoms. I know Greenwich is based on Psalm 73. I haven't seen anyone make such a connection between Solarlioth and the psalm but it seems to me like it might be a profitable exercise. 
And before we finish up, one last connection between the sacred harp tradition and medieval music. Uh, the vocal ensemble Anonymous 4, best known for their recordings of medieval music, have an album from 2006 called Gloryland, uh, which is mostly old American revival music and includes a few sacred harp songs, performed in this case by professional singers who do not drift off-key or out of tempo. If you're not a folky, uh, that might be a less jarring way of hearing the music. If you are a folky, well, it is different and maybe a bit less authentic, but I think it does give one a clearer appreciation of how the harmonies are constructed. All right, our mystery word this episode is Vixlinger. This is, appropriately enough, an Old Norse word, and it means a changeling. It's vix plus the suffix linger, which is cognate with ling in English, as in earthling or foundling or changeling. Uh, vix means to change or alter. There's a cognate there in Old English uh, in the verb rixlion, spelled with W-R-I-X, meaning to change, which spawned a Middle English verb rixle, W-R-I-X-L-E, which is a cool word but has been sadly obsolete since the 1500s. On the Old Norse side, there aren't that many other vix-based words, uh, though there is a noun, vixel, which is only used in the phrase form alvixel, meaning alternately or in opposite directions, uh, for which Zoega's dictionary also supplies the particular usage standa alvixel fotonum, or to stand cross-legged, which is an unusual thing to do. Uh, it's sort of the opposite of standing legs akimbo. Uh, apparently, it appears in Sturlunga Saga uh, and is describing someone standing and talking to someone else while maybe leaning against a wall, uh, which I guess is something I can picture. Anyway, I figured the changeling was a good image with which to end this episode concerning a kind of genre hybrid or mutant text. Depending on how much actual editing I can get done in the next few hours, uh, when this episode drops, I will either be heading out the door to go off to this year's International Congress on Medieval Studies at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, or I will already be there, praying that the Wi-Fi is good enough to get all the necessary uploading done, or I'll be shamefacedly back at home a week later having failed to get the episode done before or during the conference. Uh, as I record this, all I can do is hope for the best. You will know better than I how it all worked out. You already live in that other world beyond the episode's release day. Last time I went to Kalamazoo two years ago, I had a whole segment in the episode I put out right before on the wealth of cool-sounding panels and sessions. We don't have time for that this year, but I do feel I have a responsibility to highlight the pun, parody, and pop culture paper and panel titles that made it onto the schedule this year. As before, authors' names are withheld to protect the guilty, uh, but I will give the session number in case anyone going to the conference has their curiosity piqued and wants to follow up on any of these. Uh, and these are presented not in mockery, uh, but in appreciation. Well, mostly appreciation. I, I guess. So, in chronological order of appearance, we have Hell's Bells, visualizing the sound of hell in 12th century sculpted portals, in session 33. Cetacean Relations, Whales in Medieval Romance and Science, in session 42. It's Not Gay If It's in a Three Way, The Bromance in Arthurian Literature, in session 59. Vice is nice, but incest is taboo. Arthur's sexually charged youth, also in session 59. Uh, and you know, that panel really should have been scheduled for 10 sessions later, if you know what I mean. Our Shakespeare Ourselves, Fanish Reading and the Problem of the Sonnets, in session 96. Breaking the Grail Ceiling, Queering Chivalric Masculinity and the Grail Maidens in Mallory, in session 108. Getting to the Point, Testing Protective Qualities of Fabric Armors, in Session 110. 
Don't judge a book by its lack of marginalia, what unadorned texts teach us about women's readings in session 155. And here's the title of session 199, Fifty Shades of Green, The Islamicate Art of Seduction. They did the mash, they did the Arthurian monster mash, mergers of the matter of Britain and Lovecraft's Cthulhuan mythos in session 223. Can't get you offa my mind, memory, conquest, and the vitae authorum duorum in session 262. Owners of a swollen heart, and no explanatory colon there, uh, but it's on panel 275, Chaucer and Power 3, Empathy slash Revulsion. To bear or not to bear, an interdisciplinary approach to Incastellamento in session 308. Uh, another session title for session 322, Fifty Shades of Green, Hagiography and Demonology in the Pearl Poet Corpus. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly Imitations, the Creation of Visigothic Coins, in session 359. All the Single Ladies, the Pleasures and Perils of Female Autonomy in Conrad's Buschlein von der Geistlichen Gemahlschaft, in session 389. And finally, Medieval Distory, Historicity and Disney on Ice Fairy Tales, in session 465. It seems to me that there are fewer of these this year than usual, um, but I haven't done any actual statistical analysis on that. Uh, I also may have missed a few as I skimmed the 551 different panels being held this year. My apologies to anyone if I did not give your wit its due. Anyway, perhaps I will see some of you there at the conference, uh, or perhaps I will have already seen you there. Uh, as always, you can get more information about the sources for this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. Send me mail with your thoughts or queries to Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com, or just hit me up on Twitter at MDTPodcast. Oh, and of course, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. Well, the road beckons and I must away. Until next time, remember to keep your garments and robes, especially those graduation robes, shiny, but maybe not too shiny. Be proud, but maybe not too proud. At the very least, may you be sure-footed on your road. And thanks for listening.